Well, good morning. As you just heard, I'm Cameron Sparks. I'm a pastor here at Dallas Bible Church. I say pastor and not youth pastor because I'm vain. Uh, no, I actually love my job tremendously. I don't know why youth pastors kind of get a bad rap. I absolutely love what I do. It's tremendously fun. For me, I get to pretend I'm a teenager, right? I get to stay up late. I get to play a lot of basketball. I get to win at a lot of basketball. Spencer, looking at you, undefeated and one-on-one. So uh, he's also in eighth grade and taller than me, so I fear my record will come to an end very soon. But at some point, I'll just stop playing you. That's the key. Um, I also love uh, getting beaten in basketball by our middle school pastor, Warren Truesdale. It's a lesson we teach our kids. There's always someone bigger and better than you, right? No matter where you go. It's a lesson that I live every day being next to Warren. I have a a deal with Warren. He understands this. Uh, I'm trying to get him to try out for the Mavericks. I actually believe he can make it. And if he does make it, he owes me 10% for being his personal coach, motivator, whatever you want to want to call it. And so I've made it clear to him, this is public. I've said this in both services, so it's a binding contract. Um, But I love my job, not only because it's fun, but I love my job because I know that it is important. This is such a formative time in life. And for me, when I was in that age, it was adults who came around me, had fun with me, and also shared with me their love for Jesus that changed my life. So I love my job. I, I know it's important. I love doing it. And the reality is, at least what I think, is that it's never been harder than it is right now to grow up. These kids are being forced to grow up faster than ever before. Right? We have the internet. They're exposed to all kinds of adult ideologies. If you're a parent, you know how difficult it can be to protect your student from everything that is out there, right? Both very good things and very bad things. Whatever they're interested in, whatever they might take an interest in, all of it is a click away. And then you have social media, right? Where it's all about who likes your picture, you know, who's watching your video, who's liking your post. It can be encouraging and it can quickly turn very discouraging and very negative as you're thinking, well, who's not liking it? Or how do I not look like the people who are getting likes? It can quickly become something negative. Kids are exposed to this day in and day out. And so I think now more than ever, it is not easy to be a kid. And data actually backs this up. So a survey done by the American government uh, from over 10 years and over 600,000 American students had a lot of, of uh, information on it, and I just grabbed a few of these, said, from 2008 to 2017, feelings of anxiety and hopelessness among teens had risen 71%. Depression among 16 and 17-year-olds grew 69%, and maybe the scariest one to me, By 2017, approximately 20% of girls, that's one in five girls ages 12 to 17, had experienced major depression in the previous year alone. And I know that it's Family Sunday. I'm excited that it's Family Sunday, excited to have you kids in the room. And you may be wondering, parents, why are we talking 
about anxiety, despair. These aren't things that we want our kids to be thinking about. But the truth is, kids are going through all of the same kinds of hardships. They're exposed to all of the same kinds of emotions that we feel as adults, only they have far less experience to compare it to, and they have less tools to process it all. So we want to create a safe space where students and parents can have dialogue and conversations about this kind of stuff. These kinds of things lose a great deal of their power when we put a name to them and we put a voice to them and we share about them and we talk about them openly and we create that space for students to feel like they can speak out, right? We acknowledge that these feelings don't make you a bad person or a bad Christian. I had a parent at a church that I worked for whose daughter was 10 and she was struggling with depression. And this mom just could not wrap her mind around that. And uh, for months, her solution had been every morning when she woke her daughter up, she would tell her, remember you're a kid. You can be happy and go play. And surprisingly, or maybe not so surprisingly, that wasn't very helpful. You know, it's like telling somebody who's been cut, you're fine, just stop bleeding and you'll be okay right? So while it is difficult, perhaps now more than ever to grow up and our youth are being exposed to a lot of these things, uh, if you're a believer here this morning, then you know that there is immense hope in the gospel, right? The power of the gospel to transform our lives and to transform our circumstances and its power that is greater than any darkness that we will ever face in life. So what we're talking about this morning is how do we access that hope for ourselves? How do we access that hope for our loved ones who are in the middle of anxiety or despair? So let's jump into our text this morning. We're in Psalm 88 this morning. We've got just a few verses that I've chosen from this psalm that we're going to look at. You're welcome to open to that in your Bible or follow along on the screen. Read these verses with me. It says, Lord, you are the God who saves me. Day and night, I cry out to you. May my prayer come before you. Turn your ear to my cry. I am overwhelmed with troubles, and my life draws near to death. From my youth, I have suffered and been close to death. I have borne your terrors and am in despair. Now, kids... You're here this morning, and you're, you're hearing these verses. You're looking at these verses. This is kind of weird, right? This is not what we usually read in the Bible, especially in church, right? These verses are not the kind of verses that we usually talk about. This psalm is written by a man named Heman, or I prefer He-Man. Okay, when you have a name like He-Man, you're probably not much of a whiner, Right? So if he's talking like this, we can assume that things must be pretty awful. And this is actually the darkest psalm in the entire Bible. So this is one of only two psalms that have no turn to hope. No real turn back to praise of the Lord at the end. So this is one you're not going to find embroidered on too many pillows. <laughs> but what I love is that if we dig a little bit, we do find hope, great hope, in this particular psalm. I'd argue all the more so because it is so dark. 
So Heman, he feels overwhelmed, he feels forgotten, and many of us in this room will feel something similar to this at some point in our lifetime, if not now. We've been studying the Psalms this whole semester in the youth, so our youth are kind of prepared for these types of conversations. We've studied the roller coaster that is life. Every life experiences great rejoicing and great turmoil. My youth pastor used to say it like this. He'd say, you're either in a crisis, you're coming out of a crisis, or you're headed toward a crisis. So when we find ourselves in that kind of season, like Heman here, when nothing makes sense to us or we don't, our first step of where to turn. We cry out to God honestly. And honesty is the key here. And that's wherein lies a lot of the beauty and the hope of this particular psalm. So it does not make you a bad Christian, according to God here, who has included this psalm in his Psalter. It does not make you a bad Christian to feel alone or to feel scared or to feel hopeless or to feel confused. God empathizes with our human condition. He understands how hard life can be, and he gives us permission to cry out to him. Because sin and death are a part of every life. And God is not sugarcoating things. He doesn't say, listen, just believe hard enough, be happier, go play, and it'll work out. Right? He doesn't say, if you should just really be trying a little bit harder here. If you try harder, it's going to be fine. By including a psalm like this to be sung and to be read for thousands of years, God gives us permission to feel like Heman feels here. He gives us permission to tell God exactly how we feel and to be brutally honest. And that is truly incredible to me that God would allow us to do this. Right? It's because he is the God who leaves the 99 and goes after the one who has wandered. He is the father who welcomes in the prodigal son with open arms. What's most amazing to me is that if you think about it, we are the ones who have let this kind of darkness in. We are the ones who have created the kinds of problems that lead to us being in situations like Heman is in. We are the ones who have invited sin and death into the world as humanity. We've messed it all up, and now God gives us permission to come and lay our needs at his feet. So we're the son who has taken all the money, gone and spent it all, come back and said, hey, can I um, have a job? And he says, you can have much more than that. The most powerful prayer is an honest prayer. And I learned this later in life than I wish I had. Uh, when I was in college, I had kind of my own prodigal season where I decided that God wasn't satisfying. And I wanted to chase after things that I had stayed away from because he had told me they were bad. And so I did just that. And for a time, I enjoyed it. And pretty soon, it became uh, really too much for me to handle. It became uh, something that broke me down, uh, led to all kinds of troubles. And finally, in a, in a moment of, of real brokenness, I, I prayed an honest prayer to the Lord. And all I really said was, God, I want these things more than I want you. These things, I think, are better than you are. That was all I really prayed. But that started 
a season where I prayed honestly. Up to then, I was praying. I was confessing my sin. I was doing the things that I thought God wanted me to do. I was saying the things that I thought he wanted me to say, that I thought he wanted to hear. And I was not being honest or real with him at all. And as soon as I opened that door, the next step was, you know what, Lord, I, I really... I don't hate these things at all, but I see that they're kind of bad for me. And I wish that I hated them, but I just don't. I don't even want you to change me. Change, change that. Change that I don't want to change, right? And through more and more honest prayer, this kind of actual relationship where I was sharing my heart with him, he became more and more present to me. Suddenly, I was aware of him before sin. I was aware of him during sin. I was aware of him after sin. I became more and more ashamed of my sin. It became less and less appealing to me until suddenly a switch flipped and I could say, you know what? I don't want these things. They don't satisfy me the way chasing after you does. I can see that you're right. Didn't make me perfect. It didn't mean I shut sin off completely. All it meant was that I could now say, God, you are what I want. You are what I want, not these things. Help me to resist these things. And so he changed my desires and it all started with crying out honestly to him. Another way that we find hope is by asking God to change our circumstances. Heman shows us this right here in this passage, that God gives you permission to ask him to move mountains, if that's what you need. I was reminded, really shown this in a way I hadn't understood it before when I was doing sermon prep on a passage that I preached on in Luke 11, where Jesus is teaching his disciples how to pray. And he gives them a hypothetical situation. He says, imagine that it's very late at night and travelers come to your house, okay, and you have no bread. And now this would have been a, a really big issue in Jewish culture. One, because it's very important to be a good host. And two, if these people had been traveling and it's late, they're probably famished, they're exhausted. So to have no bread for them is a real problem. And he says, what you do is you go and you knock on your neighbor's door and you get bread from him. And he says, it's not out of friendship that your neighbor helps you. It's out of the shamelessness of your request, the impertinence, a word that can be translated as shameless audacity. What he's saying is by going and knocking on their door, right? And in Jewish culture, this would have been a family all asleep in the same room. So you've woken up the whole entire house. You've made your problem their problem. And now they have no choice but to help you because you've been so shameless in the way that you've asked them. And he says, ask the Father and it will be given to you. In other words, God through Jesus gives us permission to pray to him shamelessly, needy, bold prayers, asking him to change our circumstances. And Jesus himself models this for us in the Garden of Gethsemane in perhaps the most trying, uh, certainly the most human moment we see of Jesus where he is absolutely vexed, troubled, as he puts it, sorrowful to the point of death. Read this with me. Let's see what Jesus does. Mark chapter 14, verses 32 through 36 they went to a place called Gethsemane, and Jesus said to his disciples, sit down here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful even to death. 
Remain here and watch. And going a little farther, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. So Jesus is aware of the cross that he's about to go to. He's preparing himself for this moment where he's going to experience the fullness of God's wrath. He's going to experience the fullness of the punishment for our sins. And he prays not once, not twice, three times he asks his father, if it's possible, Lord, let there be another way. We have permission to ask God to change our circumstances. But Jesus also shows us an even better way. Submitting to the will of the Father. Believing and trusting God knows what he is doing. Right? God tells us in Romans 8, 28, through Paul, that he is working all things together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. And amazingly, we get to see this be true for Heman in Psalm 88, our author of Psalm 88, who's crying out to God. And another important point is that he's crying out continuously, continually he is crying out, right? So sometimes these seasons can last a long time. But at some point in his life, Heman becomes the leader of a guild of musicians who write many of the Psalms, some of the most beautiful literature that's ever been written and lasted longer than just about any other literature, he's and his people are responsible for. And Keller references this. He says, Tim Keller says, Heman's experiences of darkness turned him into an artist who helped millions of people. In his despair, he thought God had abandoned him, but he hadn't. Christians know that Jesus took the ultimate darkness of God's wrath. Now, I didn't run this point by Aaron, um, so don't take this out on him if you find it to be heretical. But I'm willing to bet as Heman's spirit is now in paradise, in heaven, with God, and he can see how God has used his story of pain and suffering to speak to and to encourage millions of Christians over thousands of years. I think it's safe to say he wouldn't want God to change a single thing about his life on earth. You can trust God's promise that all things end in our eternal good. But how amazing is it that our God who is so holy tells us as sinners not Listen, you're tiny and you're really messed up and you just need to zip it and trust me, right? No, he says, you have permission to cry out to me, to shamelessly ask to change your circumstances. The third way that we find comfort, comfort is letting trusted people in. Heman shows us this if we read between the lines because he is devastated that God has taken his companions from him as he sees it, or that he has lost his companions, right? He's crying out desperate for help. He needs God to restore them to him. And Jesus shows us the importance of letting, trusting, letting trusted people in during his own battle in the Garden of Gethsemane. 
Look at verses 33 and 34. It says, Jesus takes with him Peter, James, and John, and as he begins to feel this onset of deep, strong emotion, what does he do? He tells them what's going on, right? So he is the shepherd. They are his sheep. He's the one that they are to look to. He's the one that's to be strong. Does he hide what's going on? Does he keep it from them? He tells them exactly how he's feeling. He says, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. And then he asks them to remain and watch as he goes a little further to pray. So kids, if you're here this morning, kids, look at me. I want to tell you something, okay? Sometimes in church, we think that we need to look like we have everything put together, okay? And I want to tell you that it is okay to not be okay. It is okay if you do not feel okay. And when you don't feel okay, it is so important to tell someone, right? To tell a parent, to tell someone that you love. Jesus does this. Jesus lets others in, right? Jesus asks for help. We're never going to go wrong emulating Jesus. I have a close friend who also works in ministry, in youth ministry for a church. Uh, he's one of my best friends. He's someone that I really look up to. He's the kind of guy that's good at everything, super bright. Um, he's the type of guy that I look at, and it makes me proud and excited to be a Christian. It makes me hopeful for the future of the church that a guy like this loves Jesus. And a couple months ago, uh, not very long ago at all, um, he suddenly, really overnight, started to experience intense nightly anxiety that would not let him sleep at all. And this went on for over a week where he was not sleeping at all. And if you've ever not slept, it's miserable, right? And you can start to feel totally insane. And this is a guy that I absolutely know loves Jesus as his Lord and Savior, so it was very confusing what's going on. But I so admire how he handled it. First, he told his wife immediately. He told his church staff. He told some close friends. Eventually, right, we're praying for him. It's still bad. He goes to a Christian counselor. And through that, as he starts to get to the bottom of his anxiety, he unearths some shame. It was in his past, some shame that he felt. He talks through that. He starts to put names and events to what he's feeling and what he's going through. He had to be completely honest and open and vulnerable, and he was totally willing to be all those things. And so now, not only is he sleeping better, but the Lord has given him this incredible testimony that he's sharing. Uh, he's given, the Lord's given him a heart, empathy for those who experience anxiety that he never had before, that he never fully understood, Right, giving him a platform to talk into those people's lives and those kids' lives, right? all because he was willing to be honest, vulnerable, and let people who loved him in. And one of the neatest things to me is that because he let me in and others, I got to be a Christian to him. I got to be like Christ to him. I got to check up on him. I got to pray for him. I got to ask how he was doing, right? 
And not only that, but he's opened the door for others who come to him and will tell him similar struggles that they have. So he's opened the door for people to be honest and vulnerable with him. The point is you benefit yourself and those around you when you let others in. Every single person here needs trusted community, whether that's a professional counselor, whether that's a mentor, whether that's a family member. There has to be somebody in your life who knows everything that you're wrestling with, who's asking you the right questions, someone that you can turn to for help. Jesus himself asks for help. Another thing we can grab quickly from this particular scene, sometimes the best way to minister to someone is not to offer the perfect verse or the best piece of advice or the right encouragement, you know, the most encouraging saying. Sometimes the best way to minister to someone is simply to be present, simply to be present in their pain and in their sorrow and maybe pray for them. I learned the power of this when I tore my Achilles for the second time. I had just come off surgery like two weeks before, and I still had my stitches in, and I fell on my Achilles late at night, and I tore it again. And I screamed bloody murder, and I terrified my wife who was asleep, and she came running in and I'm sure thought there was an intruder in the house or something. Uh, And she found me completely and totally emotionally unhinged on the floor, like literally screaming, crying. And I was just saying, you know, please, God, no, please, God, no, I did not tear it. I did not tear it. And then I tore it again. I tore it again. I definitely tore it. I know that I tore it. And just kind of waffling back and forth between those two statements. And what my wife did is so amazing to me. She laid on the floor with me. Okay, she didn't say, you're going to be fine. It's going to be okay. And that is good that she didn't say that. That would not have been a safe thing for her to say. <laughs> she just rubbed my back. She sort of supernaturally put together what happened, I guess. She didn't ask any questions. Probably me saying it 40 times, put it together for her. But she just rubbed my back. And then when I finally grew quieter, she prayed with me. And I look back on that night and... What's weird is as traumatizing and as horrible as it was, it brought us closer together as husband and wife, the way she ministered to me just with her presence in that moment. is a very sweet moment to me that I look back on very fondly. So parents, don't underestimate the power of simply sitting and listening to your kids, right? Just listening, particularly, this is particularly true in seasons of sorrow and grief, and trouble. We don't always have to have an explanation for them. We don't always have to have the clear way that you're going to handle it and that's, it's going to all be okay. Sometimes it's best just to listen, to say, I'm so sorry, and maybe, maybe to pray. Lastly, the way we can find hope in the middle of anxiety and despair, the greatest way that we can find hope is by looking to Christ. So, Dr. Luke, in his gospel, perhaps the most detailed of all the gospels, he describes this scene in the garden, and he says that Jesus here is so vexed, so troubled and sorrowful, that he actually sweats blood. 
And the word that he uses for sweat here, the word idros, and it shows up one single time in the entirety of the Septuagint. And all of the rest of the Bible, it shows up one single time. And that's in Genesis chapter 3, when Adam and Eve received the curse for the fall. And God tells Adam, by the sweat of your brow, you will work the earth. So Jesus is turning himself to the cross. He's preparing himself to take on the weight of what humanity has done in the garden. He's thinking about this cup of wrath that he is going to drink down. The fullness of the punishment of our sins and just the thought of this wrath, just the thought of it is enough to make him sweat blood. Heman feels hopeless. He actually ends his psalm in darkness. He says, my companions have become darkness. But the reality is Christ has taken on the ultimate darkness for every single one of us in him. Literally, on the cross, the world went dark for three hours as he suffered and died and experienced abandonment, pain, anxiety, despair in a way we never have to. The fullness of despair he experienced for us so that we never have to know it. We as Christians are the only religion that can say, what I'm about to say. We are the only religion that serves a God who knows personally and intimately everything that we feel. He's lived through it himself. He knows you as you sit here this morning, whatever your stress is, whatever your anxiety is, whatever is waiting for you at home, whatever is waiting for you at your job that has you stressed, Jesus understands it. You are not alone, even when you feel alone. He has walked that road ahead of you. He has taken actually the worst of it. And at the cost of his own blood, he has made a permanent way out for each and every one of us. The God of the universe who made us and who knows us, who created us as we are, he knows anxiety and despair He's felt it in his own body. He's wrestled with it with his own mind and heart. That's the God that we serve. He even knows what it feels like to die. And that's really kind of the ultimate hardship, isn't it? Death is truly scary. When you or a loved one face death, it kind of reprioritizes anxiety in your life, helps you realize kind of what, what's truly troubling and what's truly difficult and what's truly hard. Um, and kids, if you're listening, I want you to know something that uh, I'm about to share with you my story with my family, and I just want you to know this is not your family. So if you're here with your mom this morning, your mom is safe, right? But my mom, she has brain cancer. And it's come back for a third time. I've shared some of this before. And it's too big to operate on. And so this is what we're dealing with as a family now. 
And we've done all of these things, and we continue to do all of these things. We're crying out to God about our situation. We're asking him to change our circumstances, and we will continue to ask him to change our circumstances. And we've told many about it. We have many faithful prayer warriors who I'm so appreciative of in this church here this morning who are praying for us. But the reality is, for each and every one of us here this morning, life ends. So Heman, writing this psalm, crying out to God, is no longer with us, right? He didn't make it. And yet, he now has so much hope. And so as we're facing this with my mom, the only place we can really turn to for hope is in Christ, who has gone through what we're going through. So really the only true comfort that I'm experiencing peace in is the fact that my mom knows and loves Jesus personally. And so he's gone ahead of her. He's promised that she is safe, that he has taken the sting of her death away. There is no punishment for her sin involved in her death. And so what hope we have in that, and that alone as we face this. And yet, as things are getting hard, and there's, I'm sure, going to be hard times ahead, and it's scary, most especially for my mom, whose attitude blows me away. While it is scary, right, and we're anticipating more of that again and again and again in our moments of need through a prayer, through a time together as a family, the Lord is supernaturally bringing us peace so that we can get through what we're going through. I just want to share a small example with you. When I first found out about this, the, the same week that, that she was diagnosed, I was signed up to do freedom prayer. Freedom prayer is a ministry we do at our church, and I just want to quickly say if you're experiencing any of this, if you have anxiety, if you have despair, if you're troubled, if you're wanting to just grow in your relationship with the Lord, I cannot recommend to you enough signing up for Freedom Prayer. It's a ministry run by Pat and Annie Mooney here at the church, and I didn't really know what it was about. I didn't really know what to expect. Aaron had asked all of us to participate in it, and so the same week that I found out about my mom, I went in for Freedom Prayer I met with Pat Mooney. There were two men to pray with me. One of them was Pat Mooney, and the other one was someone I'd never met before, which I don't really know how that's possible because he's everywhere. He's all over the place. But I'd, I'd never met him. Uh, and he shook my hand, and he said, nice to meet you. My name is Joe Fournier. And we sat together, and we prayed. And as we talked, and I, we talked about a lot of things. Of course, things turned to my mom. And he said, do you know what I do? And I said, no, what do you do? And he said, Many years ago, the Lord delivered me from terminal cancer, uh, and I've given my entire life to running a ministry that helps families go through cancer. And I said, that's a big coincidence. <laughs> and he has prayed with my mom. He has come to our house. He has prayed with us. He prays with me every time I see him. It's just one small way that the Holy Spirit is bringing us the supernatural peace that doesn't make sense to the world in the face of death, but that makes sense to us, that comforts us because we know who our Lord and Savior is. We know what he's gone through. And so even when we're desperate and life is hard, 
we don't feel alone. We know that he has gone through and made the way for us. My ultimate hope lies in the fact that my mom loves Jesus and knows Jesus. And so we will be together for eternity in paradise, new heaven and new earth. Anxiety, despair, suffering, these things have a timestamp for us as Christians. They're coming to an end, and in that truth, there exists a spring of hope that's inside of us, that's provided by the Holy Spirit, that is something we can drink from in the most troubling, desperate of times. When we are suffering, we can look inward. We can look to Jesus. We can trust the Holy Spirit, and he provides peace. I can only tell you that's true for me, and I believe it will be true for you. What's amazing is God doesn't say, hey, listen, stop complaining and do a better job trusting me. He says, bring your complaints. Share with me your anxiety, your despair. I am a loving father who cares and wants you to cry out to me. Cry out to him and his Holy Spirit will comfort you and bring you hope.